is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's not every day you meet someone with a deeper connection to a Denver neighborhood than Candy Sidabaka. She lives in Illyria, Swansea, in a little brick house just three blocks south of the crumbling I-70 viaduct. I am the fourth generation in this house. This is my great-grandparents' home. Your great-grandparents? And you knew them? Yes. Do you remember coming to this house way back then? I do remember. I remember what it smelled like. I remember what it looked like. What did it smell like? It smelled like Bengay. Okay. (laughs) They were older, I'm (laughs) guessing. Okay. It always had that menthol smell. So did you grow up in this house? I grew up in a combination of this house, the house next door, and the triplex across the alley. And you've made this your home. I did. I had moved out to D.C. for a little while, and I moved back to Denver in 2014 um, when my grandma was sick before she passed. And so when she passed, I had the option of either going back to D.C. and resuming my life over there or staying here. And I was too attached to the house. I didn't want to sell it, and I didn't want anyone else living in it. So I just decided to stay. And so I did a lot of um, renovations and made it my own. On Cedabaca's front lawn are several signs. One says, my community's not for sale. The other, ditch the ditch. That's a reference to the $1.2 billion plan to replace I-70 through Illyria, Swansea, with a wider and lower highway, including a four-acre park over one section. But Cedabaca isn't buying it. She's a neighborhood activist and founder of Cross Community Coalition, one of several community groups that have filed a civil rights complaint with the U.S. Department of Transportation. We left Cedabaca's house and picked up our conversation a few blocks away, next to the concrete viaduct that has divided this neighborhood since the early 60s. You went to school just on the other side of the viaduct, didn't you? Yep. I walked this walk every single day of elementary school. And this market, does that mean anything to you? Um, This was actually a restaurant called The Family Kitchen when I was um, in school at Swansea. And so this was where we would come sometimes when I would get out of school early and my mom had some money to take us to eat. Kind of a special occasion type of situation for some burgers and shakes. And there is I-70. Yeah. There it is. Hard to miss it. Can you hear it? I can hear it. This was a sort of constant sound in your childhood, I'm guessing. Yeah, I I talk to people a lot about my selective hearing because um, I'm sandwiched between these sounds and then the train sounds that are a block away from my house. So why wouldn't you want to have I-70 buried with a lid on a good portion of it? and reunite these two sides of your neighborhood. You know, what I didn't realize um, while I was living here as a young person was the inequity in having it here. Um, The highway at all. Yeah, the highway at all. I didn't realize until I wasn't living in this neighborhood how unfair it is to have to live with these sounds, to have to live with the implications of the pollution and the sounds. What are the implications of the pollution? Um, we now know that we have higher rates of asthma, significantly higher rates of asthma and cardiovascular death because of the highway. Uh, my best friend's dad uh, just passed away last year, uh, cardiovascular death, and they're the first house away from the highway down on Brighton. So none of this was abnormal to me until I left the neighborhood. The lowered option is kind of an option that they've sold to the neighborhood as the lesser of three evils. 
it wasn't an option that we had a role in deciding. It wasn't an option that people overwhelmingly preferred. In fact, if you would ask anyone in these neighborhoods whether they wanted the, the highway here or not, I'm sure people would want the highway gone. The unfortunate part about it is that when this highway was put in, my grandpa recalls how the community fought against it. But at the time, there weren't civil rights protections to be able to fight having it put in. And, and so you filed a civil rights complaint yes. this time around. Why yes. is this a civil rights issue? This is a civil rights issue because this community is overwhelmingly Latino, overwhelmingly poor. And so we were an easy target, a natural target that did not have the political or the financial capital to fight against this. And I think that there hasn't been an option to move it out of our community because we've been preyed on in the same way. We, we don't have the financial or political capital to be able to fight it. And so this lawsuit is us coming together and standing up and saying this will not happen to us again. Where do you want it? I mean, and, and when you move it, don't you just say, oh, it's someone else's problem now? I think that's a lot of the narrative that we've been hearing. Um, people are saying, if you move it, you're moving it into similarly comprised neighborhoods, predominantly Latino neighborhoods. From just a basic study, we can tell that when you drive through the area we're proposing the reroute through, it's sparsely populated. So the impact... It's in Adams County, is that right? It is in Adams County. And there's a lot less impact, but it wasn't studied because it's Adams County. And so this issue is being treated like a city issue instead of being treated like a regional issue. What if I don't want to drive all the way to Adams County to be on I-70? Not to dismiss any of your concerns, right. but gosh... I-70 hugs pretty closely to the city. So I think if anyone has driven I-25, we, we all know it doesn't cut through the middle of downtown. It loops kind of around the city. And it doesn't add too much time or too much distance to a commuter's drive. From driving the route, because it does exist, the proposed alternative does exist, you can track your mileage and see that it only adds approximately one and a half miles and one minute to a commuter's drive. Is there any part of the plan you like? When you look at the, the renderings, which you can see at cprnews.org, there is a unifying of a neighborhood that has been bifurcated for so long by this really ugly... I mean, is, would you call... This is ugly, no, this it's, viaduct, right? it's disgusting. It's, you it's see pieces dirty, falling. Right? You, you can see the neglect. And under the highway, it's filthy because CDOT has neglected it. And this is their responsibility. The city has neglected it. It's their responsibility. There's a park right across the street. And that is a park that has been neglected by the city. The cover that's being proposed is over 800 feet here to join the school to this side. But That's Swansea what, Elementary. Yes, but the narrative about connectivity um, in these neighborhoods that have been bifurcated, it's erroneous because what happens with this lowered alternative is that we lose connectivity throughout. So there will only be connectivity here where the school is at, and then you'll have to go to different streets to connect. So where I walked this route my entire elementary school life and crossed here under the bridge, some of these families are going to have to walk blocks down to be able to cross at designated bridges. 
Now, if this project goes forward, the expansion and the sort of burying of I-70, CDOT, the Colorado Department of Transportation, estimates that uh, 184 people will be forced to relocate. Many of the businesses in the shadow of this viaduct will also be forced to close. What do you think of that? I think that it's highly problematic. Um, It is not progress. In fact, it's doing exactly what was initially done when this highway was put here. How so? This was initially like a main street. 46th had several businesses along 46th, including multiple grocery stores. Um, When they put the highway, they wiped those out. You see this as history repeating itself. Yes, yes. And most of the business owners here are minority business owners. And so that is another civil rights violation. These people who are possibly owners or paying very little rent to be in these spaces won't be able to relocate for the same price in any other part of Denver. But they have to be the owners of these buildings and homes. They have to be compensated. They do, but it's not fairly. The compensation is based on current market value of these homes. These homes have experienced depressed home values because of I-70. And yet, this is primo real estate. I mean, it's close to the city and people are clamoring for homes. Uh, So wouldn't the market value actually be quite, quite good compared to other times in Denver's past? I think that the market value has increased. We've seen a 68% increase in one year. And that is still keeping us at very low property values here. I think that right now we're seeing a lot of other issues at play. We have a disproportionate concentration of the marijuana industry here. So I think some of our value increases are connected to that right now. But for most of the families looking to move into Denver, I think that the air pollution, the noise pollution um, is, is undesirable as it has been in the past. And so people who want to move here... But aren't some of the fanciest neighborhoods in Denver along I-25, for instance? Gosh, I think of, like, Greenwood Village. I think of uh, the areas around Wash Park. Those have done just fine along a highway. There's not a single neighborhood along a highway where you can go and see houses this close to the highway. Some residents have said they're okay with this plan. What do you say to them when you meet them? Um... I try to ask more questions than say anything. Um, I, I'd like to understand why they think it's a good option. Um, what and do they I, tell you? Oftentimes what I've heard is it was the best option of the three that they were presented. And that really highlights how CDOT went about the process. What were briefly the other options? There's the no action alternative, there's the expanding the bridge alternative, and then there's the lowered partial cover alternative. People seem to think that this bridge is not going to last much longer, despite the investment to repair it a few years ago. That is the viaduct. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that families want to see it gone, and the closest to gone is partially underground. But I think that they weren't given the option to actually say, I want it gone or I want it rerouted. We were, like children, given three options to choose from. So what's next, Candy? This is second in our line of defense, and we've got a lot planned to continue fighting this. Second, because you've filed a separate lawsuit, correct? Yes, we actually uh, first filed our lawsuit against the EPA, 
for changing their compliance standards, lowering their compliance standards, and allowing this project to slide through uh, for the Clean Air Act. And this is our civil rights violation. This is a complaint with the Federal Highway Administration. The next step would be actual litigation, depending on whatever the outcome is from this complaint investigation, if they decide to investigate. Thanks for talking to us, showing us your neighborhood. Thank you. Candy Sidabaka is a longtime resident of Denver's Elyria Swatsia neighborhood. She's the founder of Cross Community Coalition, one of several groups that have filed a civil rights complaint to stop CDOT's expansion of I-70. Coming up, CDOT spokeswoman for the project. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a look at the controversial $1.2 billion expansion of I-70 through Denver, north of downtown. CDOT's plan would replace the old viaduct with a wider and lower highway. But some residents of the Illyria Swansea neighborhood don't like it. We just heard from activist Candy Sidabaka, founder of Cross Community Coalition. It's one of several groups that have filed a civil rights complaint to stop the project. Now, CDOT spokeswoman Rebecca White. She's on the phone with us. And Rebecca, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. I'll point out that this complaint was filed against the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Federal Highway Administration. Uh, Rebecca, neighborhood activist Candy Cedabaca says the so-called preferred option, that is tearing down the I-70 viaduct and replacing it with a lower and wider highway, is not what the neighborhood wants. And in fact, that it was decided without input from residents. What do you say to that? Well, it's it's precisely the um, last decade we of work we've done the community with the community that we've reached the the preferred alternative that we have today, and we're. We started this process in 2003, so almost 14 years ago did we first start looking at this highway. And that, you know, over that time, we've had hundreds of meetings and gone door to door. The outreach on this has has been probably unprecedented in the history of CDOT. And yet there is not consensus. So what is the disconnect? So, you know, big projects like this um, are always going to have of differing opinions, and, and we valued those. That's why this has taken so very long. But what we're trying to balance here is um, a crumbling viaduct. I mean, that bridge was built in 1964, hmm. and if, if anything, we can all agree on something has to be done with that structure, and hundreds of thousands of cars that depend on this highway every day. And really, and when you look at the history of this corridor, this was um, Denver's original industrial and delivery area, right? The Purina was established in 1936, and the Safeway Distribution Plant, and the, um, this was the, the part of Denver that, that helped build Denver. And so fast forward 50 years, and you have all those same forces um, with the addition of Aerotropolis and Stapleton and the growth of the stock show. Uh, if anything, there's just more and more growth coming on the horizon for this corridor. You describe it as very industrial, but there have been houses and small businesses as well in that neighborhood for decades. Um, is that a bit of a one-dimensional picture of the, of the neighborhood? Absolutely. I mean, there's a um, vibrant residential community, and that's part of the balance we're trying to strike, that we've got you know, this highway that's our economic backbone um, with also a community that, that we've spent an enormous amount of time listening to and trying to find the right solution here. So what do you tell residents who are concerned about the expansion of I-70 there? What do you tell them about the, the benefits as you see them? 
Well, we, what we're looking to do is, is absolutely transform this highway. So we're taking, we're almost flipping the concept on its head. We've got a, today a viaduct that's, you know, 30 to 40 feet up above, and we're going to, to turn that into a lowered highway that's 30 to 40 feet below grade. We're building the first cover in the nation. Um, so we're, we're building this four-acre park over, not over the nation, in Colorado, this four-acre right. park over the interstate. We've never done that before, and there's an opportunity there for a, a splash park, um, uh, you know, fields, play areas, movies. Um, so, so much work has gone into making this such a different area, and we have so many more tools available to us today. We're going to look at the very first local hiring pilot so that we can bring the, the job opportunities associated with this huge investment to the local community. We're going to invest $2 million in affordable housing. We're making huge investments in Swansea Elementary School. So there's quite a bit we're doing in addition to ju- just the highway itself. So what we heard from Candy Sidabaka is that the idea of moving the highway entirely from the neighborhood was really dispatched with too quickly. Remind us why that was ruled out, rerouting it further north. Sure. So there's, you know, there's one advantage of of, um, taking on a study like this over the course of a decade is we have looked at just about every alternative under the sun. And the concept of moving all or part of I-70 has come up time and time again. And I'll tell you the number one concern we come back to is what has to be built in its place. This is not as if you'd move I-70 and and construct a, a sleepy um, tree-filled uh, lane in its place. We're talking a six-lane major boulevard, very much akin to Colorado Boulevard, stop-and-go traffic. But layer on top of that the hundreds of freight trucks that today depend on this highway that are going to have to turn to the local street network to find their destination. So we don't think that reconnects communities. We don't think um, that benefits this area in any way. So that is the real concern with the reroute, in addition to all you know, the opposition from the northern communities, the incredible costs of that. It's, it's really that boulevard that would have to go in its place. Why wouldn't the truck traffic just take I-70 if it were rerouted north? Because, well, because it, you know, if you look at Safeway is located right along on I-70, uh-huh. Equal Claw is on I-70, Manapro, Purina, all those businesses um, are located right on that interstate. You say it has come up time and time again. Is that chorus a sign of what the community wants? I think it's a sign of the of the debate we've had. It's why it's taken so long. You know, if if we were um, interested in, in a simpler solution, we wouldn't be at this 14 years in. So we've heard from all these different voices. We've done all this, this study and this analysis and looked at the air quality and the, and the right-of-way. Um, and, and, and ultimately, we have to strike that balance, and that's what we were trying to do. I'm glad you mentioned air quality because studies have shown that this corridor and those who live along it have higher rates of asthma, cardiovascular disease because of pollution. It's according to a 2014 study by the Denver Environmental Health Department. Uh, how does the um, project to widen and in some places sort of bury I-70 address air quality? Sure. That's one of our fundamental obligations um, under the Clean Air Act and the National Environmental Policy Act is that we have to demonstrate that the highway, as it's reconstructed, 
will not cause or contribute to any violations of the national health-based air quality standards. Even with a tripling in size. Right. I mean, that's exactly what we look at. Um, We look out to the year 2040 and all the traffic associated with that. But you have to consider we're taking a highway right now that has 10 hours of congestion a day, bumper-to-bumper traffic, and we're getting traffic moving again. On top of that, you've got ever-increasing vehicle standards from the Environmental Protection Agency coming down. They're Tier 3 vehicle standards. And then we're lowering the highway and placing a cover over it. So when all those dynamics come together, we actually see a betterment through this project. Oh, you, you say you're moving again traffic, but... Uh, when you forecast out that far, doesn't it just wind up being more lanes and more clutter? I, I think, for instance, of uh, T-Rex through Denver and, uh, you know, so many of those who commuted on I-25 were grateful that it was widened and now it just feels awful again. Uh, so aren't you building more lanes so that there can be more congestion into the future? Well, that's precisely why when we're we're looking at new capacity now in the metro area, we're we're doing it as express or or managed or toll lanes, because um, we found we can't keep building our way out of congestion. We've got 40% population growth on the horizon in Colorado. Everyone that moves here is coming with a vehicle, but by adding that new capacity as a toll lane, we can always guarantee that congestion-free trip and sort of manage that over the long term. We can also add a lot of investments that kind of prepare us for the future technology improvements and connected vehicles and other things. We can invest in the fiber optic lines so that we're ready for that as well. But what we have today is a highway, you know, it was built in the 60s for a population of the 80s. And today it's it's packed with cars and, and, you know, we've got the highway doesn't work for today, let alone the, the congestion of the future. Would you want to live along the new I-70, Rebecca White? You know, I and I, I heard in your, your previous segment that many people um, do live along our highways. I mean, look at, at Wash Park and um, the, the new developments going in right along I-25. Um, I, I think this is a, a wonderful part of town. It's close to downtown. Um, these are, are vibrant, long-standing communities that I have a tremendous fondness for. I don't live too far from it myself. I'm over in Park Hill. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank Re- you. Rebecca White, spokeswoman for the Colorado Department of Transportation. We talked about the expansion of I-70 north of downtown Denver. And just a bit earlier, heard from a neighborhood activist who wants to stop the project. Still to come, a trip to the ocean on Pluto. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There may be an ocean on Pluto. Images from a 2015 flyby of the New Horizons spacecraft provide evidence that a liquid water ocean may still slosh around deep under the dwarf planet's icy crust. Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Hi, Doug. Hello, Ryan. The New Horizons spacecraft, whose science mission is directed out of Boulder, flew within 8,000 miles of Pluto last year. And looking at the pictures it took... Even a non-scientist, like me, can see that the surface looks white and icy. So what are, what are we seeing first off? Well, oh, we're sorry. seeing wonderful geology, okay? I mean, you see white and icy, but you see mountains. 
you see uh, canyons, you see fractures, and you don't see something very important. What you don't see is craters. Okay. And, and that's a very suggestive thing to any astronomer because anything old should be covered with craters, uh, like the moon, you know, covered with craters that happened billions of years ago. If you don't see craters, something made them go away. Something made the craters go away. What could yeah. that something be? Well, on the Earth, of course, it's erosion and so forth. Uh -huh. but, Wind and water. Right. We actually think that on Pluto, there are geological processes going on. Um, there's heat inside. It doesn't necessarily take liquid water, but it takes convection, you call it, okay, when something gets hot and rises and then cools off and goes back down. And so the ice, the, the ice that you mentioned on the surface of Pluto, especially in the heart-shaped region called Sputnik Planitia, um, it's new. So the ice must have come up and be relatively new because it doesn't have craters. And that, of course, implies that something is going on beneath. That's right. First off, how thick is the ice shell that's covering Pluto? So probably about 200 miles. Do you prefer oh. miles or kilometers? I'll take today? a mile. Okay. Thank and, you. you know, just to take one step back, one of the nice things about a planet having a moon is that Isaac Newton taught us a long time ago that if you measure the orbits of things, you can figure out the masses because how strong gravity pulls depends on the mass. And water is much less dense than rock. And so if you know the size of something and you know the mass, you can just kind of figure out what it's made of. And when you do that for Pluto, mm. it's about eh, roughly two-thirds rock and one-third ice. And, and, the, and yet there is the possibility of an ocean dwelling under this thick ice. Well, and so – First of all, where's the ice and where's the rock? Uh -huh. Since the rock is more dense, it's going to, when Pluto formed, it sank to the middle. So the 200 miles of ice are on the outside. And there's water ice, and it's so cold at Pluto that even nitrogen, which in our atmosphere is a gas, of course, is ice. So you've got mostly water ice out there and a little bit of nitrogen ice on top of it. But there's something heating it inside. And what's heating it inside is the same thing that heats the earth inside. And surprisingly, maybe that's the radioactivity of the rock. So the core of the earth is still hot, even though we formed like Pluto did four and a half billion years ago. And the main reason for that is that we generate our own heat inside there. So think about going down inside Pluto. There is some heat coming up from below. And that's obviously going to touch the ice and create liquid water? Well, it depends on how much heating okay. and how much cooling. So it, astronomers do, and planetary scientists do a lot of calculations of this. And on the one hand, it should be pretty intuitive to people, okay? A pea cools quicker than a potato. Mm -hmm. And and. You know, you may ask or you may not ask yourself in the kitchen why that is, but the real reason is the larger something is, the more volume it has compared to the surface area, and so big things cool off more slowly. But it also depends what's on the surface. So the nitrogen ice on the surface of Pluto is kind of a bit of an insulator. People know it's kind of hard to melt ice. It's a fairly good insulator. So you've got heat coming up, but you're cooling off. And depending on the computer model, that ice may or may not still be liquid. 
This is the million-dollar question. Um, it is. You know, uh, I don't think we're going to find whales or, you know, <laughs> life. Well, they wouldn't uh, be able to come up for air, for one. So. That is, that's certainly true. Now, there's an interesting other way to think about ice, and that is if a planet freezes um, – it makes a difference in the surface. Very simply, it often cracks. And I don't know how many of our listeners have had the misfortune of accidentally experimenting with this. But if you put a can of Coke in your freezer okay. in order to freeze it, you know, in order to cool it faster. Uh-huh. And then you forget about it. And you it. forget about oh, it like I, I once did as a kid. What happens? It explodes, right? And why does it explode? It's because when ice cools, it expands. And some of those beautiful pictures of Pluto from the flyby show giant cracks and valleys in the surface that look like expansion cracks. So that's some indication that at least some of the water on Pluto in the past did freeze near the surface and expand. Uh So we've got convection going on. We've got a lack of craters. We've got cracks. We've got geology going on. And how does one confirm whether there is a liquid ocean on Pluto? Ooh, that's a very good question. I don't think that there's any way of being sure uh, because it is below the surface Uh and because we just flew past it. You know, if you're in orbit around a planet, like we have satellites in orbit around the Earth and in orbit around the moon, then we can measure the gravity much more Uh, what would you say, accurately and precisely in certain places. And we can not only know the mass of a planet, but with that technique, we can know where the mass is. So we can even tell uh, when there's water underground, uh, even though you can't see it, because a a wet rock or or water in an area brings extra mass, like a wet sponge Hmm. weighs more than a dry sponge. So it's very famous during the California drought these wonderful satellites called the GRACE satellites were able to tell that there's more of a drought under the surface of California. And they're also studying Colorado to know how, you know, everybody worries about whether our reservoirs are full. But NASA is worrying about whether underground, all that water that we try and get out with, uh, with wells, how much is down there. We can tell that. So the monitoring of Pluto is not dissimilar from the kind of monitoring that we do of our own You know, it's different in the sense that we can be so much more precise here. Um, But it's all considerations of gravity. Uh, You can't fool gravity, you know. And so you get a very good idea of what's inside a planet, which I think is quite remarkable. Uh, And this, it, it strikes me, is going to be really important in the face of climate change, to be able to measure these sorts of things about our own planet, to well, really get a sense of how wet or not the sponge is. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the most recent famous story that the GRACE satellites uncovered was the drought in the West. Right. These are two NASA satellites, yeah, it's, the GRACE it's, satellites. it's fun. These satellites are, we call them Tom and Jerry. They chase each other in <laughs> orbit. Okay. And they're about 100 miles apart. And imagine the first satellite goes over part of the Earth where there's a little more mass, a little more water, the gravity pulls it down. Not very much, just a few inches, but we can measure that. And so we we figure out what's down there. The satellites were launched primarily to look at the polar caps. Hmm. And I think a lot of people know that the ice has been shrinking quite a bit. Yes, but depressingly so. It is. What the satellites measure is how thick it is. Now, it's kind of an interesting local story 
that I happen to be friends with the commander of a submarine. This is a big, big story maybe 40 years ago. A U.S. submarine surfaced at the North Pole and stuck its conning tower up through the ice. And people are kind of amazed when they know that the ice was only six feet thick 40 years ago. Mm. Okay? And the GRACE satellites are measuring that that ice is getting thinner so if you talk to Commander Fred McLaren, who's retired up in the hills above Boulder, he'll tell you about what it was like when he took the submarine and surfaced at the pole, and he pays attention to this, and and the ice is getting thinner. That's what the satellites can measure. And that's also exposing, by the way, more landmass up near the the roof of the Earth. Um, and and strategically, the Russians and the Americans are looking at that. Well, I, yeah, I was driving through uh, – I, I shouldn't be too precise on this. I was driving through someplace other than Colorado and there was a radio station very different than Colorado Public Radio. And the people were arguing, what can we do to keep the Russians out and maybe the Canadians? Because up there near the poles, we don't know how much valuable stuff is in the ocean and maybe we want to own it. But but you're quite right. I mean, a cruise ship just went across the northern coast of Canada, the northern coast. So yeah, the ice is shrinking. I want to bring this back to Pluto, the ice there and the potential that there is uh, an ocean underneath. You said that you didn't think that there could be absolute confirmation and that it's not likely that there would be, say, Plutonian whales but right. but could there be some sign of life then, uh, given the conditions you've described on Pluto? Well, I think that we've discovered there's liquid water in more places in the solar system than we ever thought before. And there are a number of bodies the size of Pluto. You know, there's lots of Pluto friends out there. That's why it's in a different category of planet or dwarf planet. But it's very similar in size to the moons of Jupiter and there's enough thinking of liquid water below the ice that one of our CU professors quit a number of years ago and moved to the Jet Propulsion Lab to design a space mission to try and see what's under the ice of one of Pluto's moons. Mm. So I think it's more realistic to go closer than farther. I think you'd have to orbit a moon to try and confirm, like you said, or orbit Pluto to really confirm what the structure is. But that's in our future. Um, probably Pluto first. I, I'm sorry, probably Jupiter first. Um, one of the moons of Jupiter. Look for the water there and maybe someday at Pluto. Thanks, Doug. You're welcome, Ryan. Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and joins us regularly to talk about space and even Earth science. Time for Loud and Clear when we hear your feedback, which came in in droves after a story about classrooms in Denver public schools getting a makeover. One room at North Denver's high-tech elementary is almost completely rid of desks. It's designed so kids can collaborate. One side of the room is painted green, 
good for watching a lesson over Skype. Another area has whiteboards on the floors and walls for brainstorming. We designed this space to have like literally color coding, which you can see, so that kids could be working in small groups. So we know for 21st century skills and really in any career, you're working in a team and you really have to be able to come in and collaborate and share ideas. Well, listener Lori Vizda-Ward tweeted us that Denver is not the only district in Colorado making these kinds of changes. Ward is board president of the Thompson School District in Loveland and Berthoud. That district just built the High Plains School for pre-K to 8th grade. And Ward hopes the environment there will help drive home concepts in science, technology, engineering, math, and the arts. So there's things inside the school, like, for instance, the ductwork is exposed or the electrical is exposed or there's angles cut in the concrete in the floor. And the idea is is that not necessarily that the kids would look at that and learn HVAC or, you know, something like that, but they would look at those things and they would wonder and they'd say, what is this? You know, where kids are asking questions about technology or asking questions about design or engineering. So that's the hope. Ward says the High Plains School doesn't have desks in rows. It's meant to look like a real-world workspace, similar to what Denver's doing in a few schools. Those are interesting ideas that could be wonderful, according to Peter Heidecooper, Jr. of Parker, who commented at CPRnews.org. But he says the most innovative design is not going to help address the more central issue. How many kids can a teacher know and serve well? I admire teachers doing their best with 35 in a class, but it's not right. Heide Cooper works as an education consultant. Teacher Emily Martin of Denver drew our attention to some research around how kids take in information. Quote, hands-on, experiential, discovery-type learning is far superior to lecturing, Martin wrote. There is scientific proof that learning has nothing to do with sitting at a desk and being talked at, she added. We're not sure about nothing, but she's right when she points to gobs of research that show active learning can be beneficial. NPR reported on that earlier this year, and we have a link to their story at cprnews.org. Your active listening to Colorado Matters is always appreciated. Keep sending your feedback on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters, CPR News on Facebook, or click contact at cprnews.org where you can comment as well beneath individual articles. And we'll be right back on CPR News. Open the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard, hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In 1966, two Denver-area nuns latched onto an idea that seemed revolutionary at the time, that kids with learning differences could benefit if their school was tailored to their needs. The nuns founded the Havern School in Littleton. Come circle the word. What is a word that also means scratch together? Inch! Itch, itch, nice job. Now, 50 years later, a lot has changed. But Kathy Pascarello, the head of the Havern School, says in many cases in this country, kids still don't get the attention they need. She joins my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Kathy, welcome to the show. 
Good morning, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Let's go back to 1960 when many people weren't familiar with the idea of a learning difference. And let's say I'm a teacher. I have a second grader who's really good in math, but he can't read. What could I do back then to help him? Probably just give him some extra attention and work with him more individually, one-on-one, to help notice what parts of speech or what parts of the language he's missing so that you can help him develop those reading skills. So there weren't a lot of tools that were recognized back then to help kids. Um, and the term most often used was perceptually handicapped back then. The terms have changed over time. They have. They have. And tell me about the nuns uh, who started Havern. Um, How did they recognize the need for something different in education? You know, the school was started by the Sisters of Loretto, who are just a visionary group of women who were always looking for the frontier in education. They started back in the 1800s, educating children in rural areas, and they were learning that there was this need for students who had a different way of learning to be taught differently. And they did their research and found out that Syracuse University was a leader in granting those degrees. So they went and studied under Dr. William Cruikshank um, and were one of the first to get degrees in special education, master's degrees in special education. And they came back and started a school when there weren't many schools around. No, we were one of the very first in the Rocky Mountain area. And just back to terms for a minute, uh, I read that the term learning disability may have been first used publicly at a 1963 conference in Chicago. It's more commonly referred to now as a learning difference, I think, to avoid a negative connotation. Sure. But Havern still calls it a learning disability. Why is your school chosen to keep the old term? Well, we all have learning differences. You learn differently than I do. We all have a different learning profile. Most of us in a regular classroom will have those needs met. Our learning differences will not be so huge that we need intervention services. The students at Havern School come to us because they need an intervention model, and they have a learning disability, and we are very intentional in how we instruct and teach those children. It's almost as if you're saying that the politically correct term minimizes these challenges. It does minimize the challenge, and it doesn't give them the attention that they deserve. I've had students, older students, tell me that if I don't give my learning disability the full attention it deserves, then I'm not giving it the credence that it needs to um, become a successful learner. At Havern, you have students from grade kindergarten to eighth grade. What's the profile of kid who goes there? You know, how does the school define a learning disability? Well, all of our students have been diagnosed with a specific learning disability by a professional, most often a medical or a therapy uh, associate who diagnoses that. And so um, I guess I would say that while we have 85 very unique children, the most common learning disability is related to a language disability, language processing, dyslexia, um, the auditory processing, those types of things. And it has to do with if you score differently in the different IQ um, measurements, Right. Correct? You can score quite high in some areas and have some challenges in others. So you may be very, very good at math, but language processing may be more difficult for you. Is there a way to explain, because I think it's complicated for people to understand, but how these kids learn differently from other kids? You know, specifically what's going on in their brains? Well, 
different parts of their brains are lighting up differently than other children. That's something we know from watching functional MRIs. But sometimes these children need um, an intervention model that works on those neurodevelopmental functions. And so we are using those particular types of strategies and curriculums to help that whole brain light up so that they learn more efficiently. So what's an example of a strategy that you, uh, you know, that works with some of these kids? Well, I would say very multidisciplinary strategies. So when you listen to those children who were doing a reading lesson, an Orton Gillingham reading lesson in the background, they're not only reading the sounds, they're speaking the sounds, they're tapping them out with their hands, and they're getting to use all modalities in that learning process. In the old days, schools like Havern were rare. Uh, Now there are schools all over the country, but they're in large part private, so they're not an option for many kids. And how can these students get what they need if they can't afford to go to one of these specialized schools? Well, I think parents need to be their child's best advocates and really push for those services because the public schools have some very good services to offer those students. So advocating for them is the best way to get those services. Is there a point at which Colorado could have a school for kids with learning disabilities, or is that something that's uh, too expensive? um, Well, the schools are designed, the public schools are designed to meet children's needs, um, and so that's what every public school makes an effort to do. Some of our students have not had the ability to even qualify for an IEP. Their strengths are too strong. It's an individualized education I'm sorry. Yes, it is. That's that that acronym speak. Um, So some of our students have not qualified for those special services. So parents have brought them to us to strengthen those skills so they can go back into a general education setting. And what's the prognosis for kids who aren't diagnosed um, or don't get special help, especially early on? They certainly have much greater difficulties, not only in school, but outside of school and in life. Um, You really need to be able to have your skills to go out and get a job and to be successful, even in the social world. Has Havern pioneered any methods for helping kids, in particular with learning disabilities, to, you know, say, read uh, better, learn math? I don't think we've pioneered a specific curriculum, but what we are unique in our setting is to understand that it's the whole ch- brain that contributes to learning. So we have speech-language therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills therapy all integrated into our daily curriculum, and I think that makes us very unique. Do issues uh, with social skills come along with learning issues? They um, do sometimes. If you are um, a slower processor and a slower thinker, being able to think faster on your feet socially is sometimes very, very difficult. So we work on those things. Social problem solving, you know, how do you solve um, problems with friends and uh, especially if they're related to language? All the way back into the 40s, um, Dr. Cruikshank saw that the social world was part of the issue developed as a difficulty for kids with learning disabilities. And just briefly, how does Colorado compare to other states when it comes to educating kids with these kinds of academic challenges? Well, Colorado has, I think, a lot of challenges with education in general, and allocating time and money and resources is is not our strength. And so I think it's something that um, we need to continue to work on as a state. Kathy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Andrea. Kathy Pascarella leads Littleton's Havern School. It was founded 50 years ago now by two nuns. 
Colorado Matters managing producer is Rachel Estabrook, and our producers include Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle B. Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, and Stephanie Wolf. Michael Hughes and Matt Hers are our audio engineers. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook, CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us.